0: Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Why It Matters. I'm Tracy Kronczak, and this is my always stalwart co-host. Tim.
1: (laughs) Thanks. Glad I have missed my cue on that, I feel like, Uh, but I'm Tim. I'm a stalwart companion
0: i just like doing that to make you miss your cues so it kind of I works know. really well because it's like, like it happens pretty frequently
1: that i miss cues so it, it it's easy with me yeah too.
0: there's a lot of deer in headlights but it's exciting <laughs> you're like hey i'm tracy and you're like <laughs> and i'm tim yeah there we go um I am delighted to welcome our guest today, Chantal Forster, who's the executive director of the Technology Association for Grantmakers. And as is tradition, Chantal, I will let you introduce yourself. And, you know, we would love to hear as part of your introduction, like what brought you to where you are right now? Like what's, why is this your passion? And, you know, because there's so many things about you that I think make for a great story, but we'll start there and then we'll just kind of nitpick at it.
2: Well, Tracy, Tin, thank you for having me on what is the the most fun podcast out now. Um, It's a a real pleasure to be your guest. Uh, So as you mentioned, I'm Chantal Forster. Um, I serve as the executive director of the Technology Association of Grantmakers, but I also am the daughter of a computer scientist And the daughter of an art historian and art educator, which means I spent my whole life caught in the middle between people who understand technology and people who don't. And so that is the origin story for why I serve in the capacity that I'm in, working in a sector that has yet to realize the power of technology to scale the mission to improve societies, to improve uh, the equity uh, in our available in our culture, um, it's it's the thing that drives me to do this work fundamentally. And then there are many pit stops along the way. But when I think about what what is my origin story and my grounding, it really it really starts there.
0: I want to ask a follow up to that, and that is. You know, to a sector, to to the exact quote you just said, to a sector that is realizing or beginning to understand the power of technology, I feel like there's a lot of stereotypes about what grant making is as an industry. There's also an equal amount of observation, frustration, and hope for what it could achieve. So what does that look like from where you're at? Because one of the journeys that I've observed you and particularly tag are on is, you know, a journey of greater activism in the grant making space. And I think activism in the grant making space, from my own experience, is hard because you don't want to upset apple carts and, and kind of dissuade donors or, or alienate funding or whatever. So There's there's got to be more there. There's there's a line you're walking and there's also some promise that you're you're talking about there.
2: Mm. Uh, Well, it's interesting. I was just speaking about this with um, Kari Anastad from GrantAdvisor.org the other day. We share a commitment to the Fix the Form campaign, and I like to think of it as as disrupting with love like I can be a little bit of a disruptor, but if you do it with love and a genuine commitment to the people that you're trying to to spur some change within and the community that you're trying to spur some change within, I think people feel that, right? I'm I'm on your side, but things gotta change, right? I'm from the South side of Chicago originally. And so we have these straight talk moments, right? But things have to change around here. And I think that when you do that, with love and commitment and make someone feel that you're standing by their side, it's a different message and a different outcome.
0: Sorry, I just wrote down disrupting with love because I feel like, you know, if more of us could learn from that, that would be a lovely thing everywhere in the tech space. Um, You just touched on one of the projects that I wanted to talk about, and, and maybe this is a starting point, and that is, let's talk about the 100 Forms in 100 Days project. You mentioned it. I kind of conceptually know what it is, and I feel like there's been enough discussion of it on LinkedIn that if anybody's been following it, you'll kind of get it, but it's not just about show me yours and I'll show you mine, right?
2: It's not. And so I need to to cue that conversation up by saying, this is not my initiative. It's not TAG's initiative. Grant Advisor, led by Kari Anestad and Laura Solomons, are um, the originators and the co-founders of grantadvisor.org. And last year, they launched a program, Fix the Form, to survey uh, nonprofits throughout the world about their top pain points. What are your top pain points in the grant application process? And so one of the top pain points, if not the top pain point, was the inability to, doubt, to see the full grant application ahead of time, which means you, you've got an app open, you're not saving, you're, um, you lose your connection, you lose your whole application, any number of pain points that result from that. So as part of this, uh, Kari wanted to to spur some commitment to addressing this number one pain point. At the same time, TAG on the other side over here, working to to spur funders to invest in digital infrastructure uh, and to do things like consider whether there is a call for a common grant application. Again, there are several funders working on that. TAG takes a very research-oriented approach to such questions and so I was talking to Kari one day thinking what if we benchmarked the current state of grant applications out there Mm. and did some you know some NLP some natural language processing did a similarity analysis between a hundred grant applications from throughout the sector and figured out how similar are we already to enter this conversation around a common grant application by saying, don't worry, you're already 60% of the way there. That's a very different dynamic than coming in and saying, let's do a common grant app. Why? Well, because it's important, which it is, but to calm everybody's fears about the investment to say you're already 60, 50, whatever percentage of the way there. What a powerful message. What a powerful means of building a coalition. So that's when I teamed up with Kari, a grant advisor for the 100 forms in 100 days campaign to gather these forms, gather the commitment to put a downloadable form on your website as a foundation and then share that form with TAG so that we can bring in our data scientists to do that similarity and share back with the sector how close they are.
1: How, um, how much, how close are they? What are you finding so far?
2: Um, we are not there yet. So we have, we're 50% of the way in the campaign. We still have eight weeks left. And then in four weeks, we've already gathered 50 forms um, and thanks to special thanks to grants management system providers like Foundant who have made it easy. They work behind the scenes with us and made it kind of one click easy for their clients to download the form. And I'm working with several other um, GMS providers right now to do the same thing in their platforms. So once we get there, um, we'll be able to share out with the sector. I don't have any idea. It could be 20%, it could be 60%, it could be even more, um, but we should probably know before we embark on some of these collective endeavors.
1: Makes me proud of Bozeman to hear Foundant mentioned by the way. So yeah. that's, that's great.
0: Yeah. It also makes me think like this approach that you're taking. I mean, one of the things that's true is another area of pain that I am marginally familiar with with consulting to nonprofits are when nonprofits have to submit for data to state and federal entities. Um, you know, I've worked with a few here that say, basically, I put it into the California State FORTRAN system, and I never see it again. So, you know, there is the potential here to take this approach towards other funding sources, not just sort of the, what I would think of as the traditional philanthropic community, meaning like public and private foundations and the donor advised fund kind of institutions and so forth.
2: And to take this take this approach beyond to even the to public sector grant makers.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, wouldn't it be nifty if we could take this approach to say San Francisco, Los Angeles, you know, Mendocino and Modesto, and say, hey, look. <laughs> This is how you all are interacting with your organizations from a, from a city funding level. And by the way, here, state of California, this is how you're interacting with your organizations from a state level. Like Maybe we can create alignment between these things so that organizations aren't struggling to submit different versions of the same outcomes to two different entities at two different levels.
2: Mm. So the application end and the reporting end.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. Both those
2: are extremely time consuming for nonprofits. Yep. I, I feel you and I'd love to see, I mean, it starts somewhere. It's a start somewhere uh, kind of initiative. And if we can see funders move toward coalescence on the application side of things, my hope is that we'll build the muscle, right, for doing it on the reporting end of things as well.
0: And if you look at folks like uh, Giving Tuesday, for example, they've kind of already started these data collectives around even just what it means to be an individual donor to pools of nonprofits, right? And... You know, there's huge movements afoot around data in general for nonprofits, and I, I always get enthralled when I talk to folks like you, and when I talk to people who see these sort of giant aggregate. Why are we repeating the same things over and over again? Insanities. Um, where, where does this? You know, what's the long-term vision, like beyond creating a standardized application? Obviously, that would be one very helpful outcome. Like, where are you looking at this, like, maybe taking this to other countries? Are you looking at this, you know, what's the sort of greater sort of like, okay, if we've accomplished this one thing, where does it go next?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now that that answer is very different for TAG than it is for say me personally. Um, what I'd like to see very personally are a couple of shifts. I'd like to see a shift in the social sector toward uh, rooting the way philanthropy does it does its work, the how of philanthropy, in what the private sector calls the customer experience, what we could call the grantee experience. I mean, if our ultimate goal in philanthropy is to realize outcomes, it's, we don't do the work. Mm. People we fund do the work. And if we truly care about their ability to do the work and ground it out and, and realize outcomes, why wouldn't we work as hard as we can to understand their end-to-end experience with our foundation, even their end-to-end experience in getting the work done and work to ease those pain points and work to invert our operational model for how we do philanthropy to support their end to end experience as best we can. So, rooting philanthropy rooting in the grantee experience. Perhaps instead of hiring a chief strategy officer, we could hire a chief experience officer whose whole job in philanthropy was to understand the grantee experience, work across silos to ease that that experience, measure, develop listening systems, thoughtful, authentic listening systems, more than perhaps a once a year grantee perception survey and and adapt and and, uh, improve efficiencies in philanthropic operations to serve those grantees better. The other thing I'd love to see is a recognition that no single funders portfolio is enough to solve the problems that they aim to solve. Yeah. I lived in New Mexico for, for 10 years and there were some enormous challenges in New Mexico. It's a beloved place to me, but there were some enormous challenges and some very well endowed funders funding work there. At the same time, the, portfolio, the pro- portfolio of a funder could be $50 million. That is a drop in the bucket for the, pro- for the solutions that need to occur in, in that one state alone. So the recognition that we're in this together, what orgs like the Chicago Community Trust calls collaborative philanthropy, that that collaborative philanthropy really acknowledges the fact that no single funder can do this alone. It drops the ego and says, we're in this together. The, The work that we're doing, the work that we're funding, the change that we seek has to happen as a coalition. And that has all sorts of implications for data sharing, Right, data standards, platforms and systems, data sharing agreements across funders with other players, public entities in in the system, institute higher ed institutes, for example, uh, service providers. If we own that, we will invest in the infrastructure we need to do this work collaboratively. But if we maintain the illusion that you know my check for 25 million or my check for 10 million is gonna realize the change, we won't invest in those under that underlying infrastructure that frankly I believe is needed um, to do to realize the outcomes we seek.
1: Does that mean that the chief experience officer, I love that, chief experience officer also has to be a chief collaboration officer with other funders because the experience is not just what happens with that organization and a single funder it is that organization across multiple funders right that's the
2: brilliant. that's the
1: experience right um, what does what does that look like in the future
2: mm-hmm. brilliant and you've nailed it and you could look at uh, you could look at analogies in higher ed and healthcare sectors that both have moved to a, an experience orientation, a customer experience orientation. And so their customer experience, chief, chief experience officer, for example, looks at it as concentric circles. The experience of priority, audiences or clients or grantees, um, their, prior, their experience, their experience across funders, the experience in an ecosystem of change, whether that's place-based or field-based, so you're right. You know, it is a chief collaboration officer as well as a chief experience officer. If we're if we are authentic and grounded in the fact that this is an ecosystem of change, not individual funders writing individual checks. Right. I think what's. Um,
0: um, oh, go ahead, Tim. Oh, go ahead. Oh, what I was going to say is, I think what is so interesting to me is the overlap between what you just articulated and you know what someone like Darrell Booker who we just had on on our podcast would talk about it's that you know if you replace the word philanthropy with white savior and if you replace the chief strategy officer with the i've got a plan for you you know what you're actually also talking about is how many underrepresented communities wish equity would be better executed and that is not you know from an external motion of you know hey we think you can do better but from an internal hey what are your needs and how can we best amplify them perspective and i think that's fascinating because the overlap between what you just described and that long-standing request is pretty substantial in terms of the kind of approach that you wanna take. You
2: no, know, it's interesting. I think that um, there is a certain humility, in fact, a great deal of humility, in my opinion, that is or should be part of the work of being a funder. All you're doing is writing a check. All you're doing is writing a check. Somebody else is boots on the ground, doing the work, living the experience, pouring their heart and soul into the change. And all that we're doing is writing a check. And I think that when that's your role in the change, and it's a very important role, I think it should come with an extraordinary amount of humility. And with that humility and a listening ear, a deep commitment to continuously learning what that change takes Right, what that change takes on the ground, what that change takes in terms of what you might call boring funding, right? The boring funding for infrastructure and operations behind the scenes, um, you know, the rent for a nonprofit, the the security audit for a nonprofit, right? This is boring stuff, um, but it is mission you know mission critical, pun intended, right? If when when we live in a world where almost every touch point philanthropy and a nonprofit have with society involves technology, IT can really make or break your values. You can have a value statement out there, but unless you've really funded to and you care about the operations side, the IT side of the house, you have no idea if your values are being implemented.
0: It's funny. uh, I'm just laughing because 20 years ago-ish, You know, I I said it to a colleague this morning, you know, when you'd walk outside with your sandwich and have to bat away pterodactyls, um, you know, (laughs) you know, in that era, you know, I was a technology manager for a national nonprofit. And Mm -hmm. there were two things that were true, you know, when it came to applying for funding that would you know, give people things like, you know, laptops or Wi-Fi funding or, you know, anything that they could use to actually do the work. Uh, One was you had to sort of hide it in the budget. You couldn't just flat out say like, we need 15 grand worth of X technology to do this. You had to be like programmatic servicing fees or I like program budget. yeah exactly and and a volunteer coordination externality fee or whatever right and at the same time you know my director you know he would say to me all the time you know i was like oh man like i don't know how we're gonna do this you, you're talking about a new research endeavor that's new staff that's new computers and he would say tracy never ever ever let the truth get in the way of a good story Um, and I, and I think that's how technology for nonprofits got funded, you know, 20 years ago, uh, when the pterodactyls didn't take it away from your office, you know, but I think now, you know, there's been a huge reckoning and it's been through the work of organizations like N10 that has said, look, you know, it's not just about pure mission execution. It's about people and it's about supporting people in the journeys of their job and i've had a lot of conversations with tech leaders that you know have led me to personally believe mission is personal to people as is technology so it makes perfect sense to me that nonprofits grab at these things from a very sort of low level perspective because what they're wanting to replicate is that personal engagement again and again and again Uh, So this is encouraging. And I love that, you know, the efforts that you're kind of helping to spearhead are leading to change in the ecosystem.
2: Well, I'm certainly not the first one to say it. There's a, you probably have seen it. There's a great quote, a great statement from Darren Walker, president Mm -hmm. of the Ford Foundation. Um, And I'll read it if you don't mind. I mean, what is- Go ahead.
0: I love some of the work that Ford's done in this We all love a good Darren
2: Walker quote. All of the unexciting parts of a nonprofit have to be paid for, technology, infrastructure, paying the rent. And then Darren says very boldly, it is both arrogant and ignorant to believe that you can give money to an organization for your project and not be concerned about the infrastructure that makes your project possible. So all TAG is doing is trying to, in partnership with N10 NetHope and, Net and TechSoup and orgs like Grant Advisor, is continue the conversation that Darren Walker started about what it means to actually fund change um, in the non-glamorous parts of that work. Um, and so I'm just grateful that he set the bar high out there and, and we continue to, to support um, set, support that bar in the world.
0: Does that...
1: Um, yeah, I'm curious about the, in, in that, in that vein, what are the inefficiencies that you see, um, over and over because you, you're kind of an aggregator. So they, they roll up through stories and other means to you where, where are the inefficiencies that, uh, that you see as an organization and what do you do about them? Mm.
2: Well, here's where I'm going to speak some truth on behalf behalf of my members, the IT leaders and staff and decision makers at foundations. Um, The reality inside philanthropy is not that dissimilar from the nonprofit reality in that there is a gross underinvestment in technology. So in, in some sectors there, the investment in tech is, gosh, between 5% and 22%. I think this was a KPMG uh, study in 2019. Private sector organizations, their spend on IT is between 5% and 22% of revenue. There was a 2017 study in contrast by NetHope. Yep. And I don't know if you saw this, the average IT spending at global nonprofits Is about 2%, 2%. And And those
0: are the big nonprofits that can afford to spend it. Yeah.
2: Including foundations, including foundations. And so if you are an IT leader in philanthropy, you are not getting the investment you need within your foundation. And so I think that funders, um, many of them have a lack of lived experience internally in their staff for tech to be an innovator and a scaler. And so they haven't invested internally in digital infrastructure and digital transformation. And therefore, they're not investing in it externally with nonprofits and then certainly not uh, more broadly for the sector.
1: It's just so true that if you, <laughs> if you underfund an area, it looks like that area is underperforming so of course you're not going to keep funding it right so you're just getting false flags on that over and over um I it is news to me i've heard it uh i don't think i've heard it that explicitly but it is news that is true of the funding world um as well and i think that i think there is an assumption out there that the technology and efficiency at the funder level is a lot higher Um, so I think that that's, that's interesting. I'm glad for that information to get out because I don't think that's the common view.
2: Yeah, it's not. You know what happens at most foundations? The executive team sets the mission. The IT leader may or may not be on that executive team. The, strate- the mission, the strategy for the next you know, three years, five years gets set. Then it gets put on the desk of the IT leader to say, how can you support this mission? Any of us who spent our whole careers in technology yeah. think, I mean, that's shocking, right? Technology should be right at the table when you're thinking about what the strategy could be, because tech is a strategic enabler, it's a scaler, it's an innovator. And so you're losing out on all the benefits of technology. It's not to, I'm not trying to whitewash technology. We all know that there are challenging elements of it. But when you're thinking about your strategy for it not to be included as a strategic enabler is a really gross oversight for, for mission enablement and scaling.
1: Does that lack of lived experience translate into um, they don't know the outcomes of what they are working on even when they're working on capacity projects. So like, they like what is the long-term missing information? Um, thats that doesn't come back to the organization. I just start with one, like an assumption I'm making at the beginning of this question is, if you don't invest enough in technology, what you end up with is a data collection system that cannot translate data into information, right? So if that's the case, then most of the time what you see is data collection systems. And if that's true at the philanthropy level, then the data you're collecting like is not, you can't convert that into information and insight. So first off, is that true? Is that one of the outcomes that uh, underinvesting is creating for philanthropy?
2: Hmm. That's a very juicy question, right? When you talk about how philanthropy uses its data, I will tell you a little secret. Many funders, even the biggest funders on the planet still store many of their outcomes data in PDFs on a file server. Do you want me to say that again? Well,
0: no, I'm I'm taking that that in.
1: Data is being collected (laughs) is not even true. We are collecting, we're collecting paper uh, digitally.
0: Well, it's searchable in Evernote at least.
2: Um, (laughs) Now we're working on it. That's not to say there isn't a great deal of devotion, brilliance going into this, but you know, the truth is Many people, many IT leaders behind the scenes will just wring their hands and say, oh God, the truth is our, our, our reports are in a, on a file server in a PDF. Yeah. Sure. Um, so the data ecosystem for philanthropy is, is more complex than most, most executives in philanthropy um, realize or understand or want to face or want to fund. And so think about it this way, right? There are conditions data coming in from any number of public institutions, even if you sponsored uh, an individual local survey, you know, that's conditions data out here, then you've got your portfolio data right here, your funder, um, your portfolio allocation data, then you've got your reporting data, your outcomes, your evaluation and measurement data, Very few funders have connected the dots on the whole ecosystem. And so community conditions, portfolio, outcomes data, I don't know of any of them actually that are feeding the outcomes data back into the community conditions data to create a 360 degree view of what what community health and investment looks like and what that translates to in terms of outcomes. That creates a sophistic... That requires a sophistication of systems Uh, of shared data models, right? The ability, not all those of your data sources share the same data model. So how can you translate between the various data models to get that kind of view of your data that can be used to drive decisions? And even if you have all that data in a data lake, let's be honest, is that in a dashboard that's user-friendly enough for your CEO or your strategy VP to slice and dice and figure out, make a decision based upon that? It's not, it's currently not.
1: You know, so okay, is that absence of vision? I'm sorry, Tracy. No, go ahead. I'm, you that was a hot one. I, I can have tell. like four I know, of I'm them, so, so I'm just gonna rack so them
0: up incredible. and wait. It's all right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but is yeah, is that that sounds like lack of vision? Like the technologies there. Yeah. I'm not saying it wouldn't be complicated, but that what I think I'm hearing is if those aren't connected, even in places where they live, that is lack of vision to see that as the final outcome um, or a final outcome. So. Maybe there's not a question. That's just a statement. But
2: I have a um, comment on that one. It's a a lack of a couple things. It's a lack of a couple things. It is a lack of of technology integration. So the disparate sources of data I talked about are challenging to integrate. They're challenging to dynamically integrate. Right? They use different data models, you bring them into your data lake, you br- export them from your data lake into some sort of uh, BI tool, business intelligence tool. Is that, is that a dynamic integration? For most people, it's not. Um, the second challenge is think about who within a foundation, who owns, which, which functional area in a foundation owns each, each portion of that data. The community yeah. conditions data data typically does not even touch your IT department. That's a strategy or That's a program, your program team. Program team owns it. They never talk to IT. They never go out to lunch. They never go to a coffee, right? So that data is over here owned by somebody else. IT typically owns alongside the grants management team, the portfolio data. Who owns the outcomes data? Take a guess.
0: Grantees own it, but then they, they submit it back it. to the program <laughs> officers, who just like take it and read it and sign a sheet of papers saying approved or not approved.
2: Yeah. An evaluation it boils down to, to compliance on only. Pardon me. Right.
1: So does that boil it down to just compliance? Like it's compliance data functionally then?
2: It might like be. Just,
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah,
2: it might be. In in many funders, that data is owned by an evaluation team, which may be a subset of a program team or an independent functional unit. So that is three functional areas and one foundation owning three very important segments of data.
0: You know, to your earlier comment about humility, here's the worst part of that. Like, I just had a little epiphany because, you know, here's the thing when you haven't gotten the ability to integrate those areas, you as an institution are gonna go back to the community that you're funding with the exact same approach year over year, no. which to a lot of communities, if the community is creating work and creating change, but the grant maker is coming back with the same approach towards funding, After a while there's going to be cognitive dissonance between what the grant maker assumes is happening, and the community knows is happening. And that's where you get that terrible sort of like PR war of like, you know, arrogant funder versus like pissed off community organizer. You know, this has huge ramifications for how the industry is perceived.
2: And that's why I'm so proud and impressed by efforts like the Chicago Community Trust's new effort called Together We Rise. Community foundations, because they're so close to the pain, right? the conditions, the pain of a nonprofit suffering exactly what you just described, they tend to be very innovative in their willingness to collaborate with other agencies and other funders and other nonprofits. And so Together We Rise is an effort by the Chicago Community Trust. To invest, to catalyze investment in an equitable and just recovery. And so they have created shared funding pools. They're working with funders all across uh, Chicagoland, Um, and they're creating shared data platform standards, systems, so that they don't have to go back to and replicate those efforts going back to nonprofits, that they, on the funding side of things, take seriously the onus of all of that hard work so funders can be out in the field doing their hard work.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to ask one quick follow-up and then put us into a different arena uh, of conversation. The very quick follow-up is, does your definition of inefficiency include salaries? And I ask that because one of the things that I see as like, you know, having been on the business side of serving nonprofits is nonprofit technologists gets their start. At some point they get real skills, real hard skills in something. Could be anything, could be networking, could be dynamics, could be Salesforce, doesn't matter. That nonprofit is able to pay them 50, maybe 60 grand a year. And after a while, there's a lot of business partners and consulting firms who are like yeah i could move that closer to 100 and they leave and they take their expertise out in away and one of the things that has always struck me it's that there are many factors to employee retention in the nonprofit ecosystem but one of those factors is can we please pay more competitive salaries
2: that's a great statement um- You know, here's another little secret. It's the same challenge in philanthropy. Mm -hmm. IT staff, IT leaders in philanthropy are also underpaid in contrast to the private sector. And so categorically, IT roles in the social sector are underpaid and therefore have a retention problem in contrast to the private sector. And yep. so sometimes what you see are truly people with a heart of gold who can, who can live on a lower salary. But sometimes you also see people with less marketable skill sets staying in the social sector, less up-to-date skills, et cetera. Um, And then what happens is you also see people who maybe can't leave the sector, stay at a senior level and then not leave, not retire. So you get some really great, hot, vibrant, innovative talent at the lower levels with nowhere to go. We were just talking to our emerging leaders Mm -hmm. program the other day with TAG and one of the biggest complaints with those emerging leaders is there's a ceiling, there's nowhere to go, there's no career path. Within technology and philanthropy. So it is the same problem on both sides of the coin the funder and the grantee. And it's, I'm sure, undoubtedly even worse for nonprofits.
0: Also, on inefficiencies, you know, I think this is a great place to dig in a little bit to nonprofit data. Um, And I'll open this by saying, you know, we as business partners serving nonprofits see inefficiency all the time. It's when we take a nonprofit and we move it from one data platform to another. Mm. And, you know, why I personally, why Tracy personally is here doing this in 2021 and why Tracy personally has made a big stink about nonprofit data over three years since 2019 is because, I'm tired of seeing money wasted. I'm tired of seeing the same problems re-executed on different spaces in bigger and bigger silos. So, you know, let's talk about that from a philanthropic perspective. What do philanthropists see that's the same or different? And and what's your kind of observation of those inefficiencies?
2: Um, I'll be very concrete with a specific inefficiency. If you are a nonprofit, how many times in the past year plus have you been asked to complete a demographic data survey? Yeah, Uh, right. (laughs) Right? Yep. Yep. Why are we, why are we wasting precious nonprofit time? To answer the same questions over and over and over and especially when candid has already has this a baseline demographic data survey available so that precise question is replicated over and over within the sector and you could you could ask that question many different ways and underscore the same problem that you're identifying right uh, a belief that I think um, time in the nonprofit sector mm. is not worth that much. I think it rests in a fundamental belief that time is not very valuable.
0: Yeah, time is
2: As
1: the an most economist, valuable. It drives me crazy. There's no opportunity cost to push up against when you're looking at, uh, at almost anything with nonprofits. So I completely agree. Um, we, we see as consultants, we see anytime we're going to move an organization from one platform to another, it's very similar to the uh, 100 forms that we were talking about earlier. What we see is we are basically rearranging data from one platform into another at a cost of about 40% of the overall budget. And that, um, that has driven us to really double down on common data model. So I know that you know, we've been out there talking about common data model. We think that it's important. Um, And we think that it's important because of exactly what we're talking about. That data should be very mobile. (laughs) We should be able to push it from one place to another with a lot more ease than 40% per budget. Um, But it it feels like it is very challenging to move that forward in this ecosystem. and and so I think that that um, that has created a lot of conversation around common data model. Um, we've talked about it in terms of we want to see an and world, not an or world. So there are lots of nonprofits that are multi chapter, that have lots of different locations, and what we want to see is for some of those locations to be on one platform and some to be on another, and for that data to still work together and aggregate to a BI tool and then back down as needed. Um, is that, how, how does that show up in your work and in your world?
2: Uh, that's a great question. And I wonder what it would look like to say to all of the vendors in the space, whom I work with regularly and love and rely on for innovation to kind of come at philanthropic innovation actually from the vendor partner perspective, I rely on that regularly. But what would it look like to say, none of all y'all are gonna own the full tool stack for a nonprofit or a foundation. None of all y'all are gonna own the full tool stack for a foundation. So you have to play together because nonprofits, foundations, should be able to select best in breed tools, right? And integrate those tools and drive drive data-driven decision-making within their organizations, data-informed decision-making even, and make the best use of the best tools that are out there because there are some phenomenal providers in this space. And to what we're doing right now by I fear and I see um, by not providing interoperability between the predominant data models is Foundations are backed into a corner and nonprofits are backed into an even tighter corner. Yep. And what they get yeah. is not the best of what they could get.
1: Yeah. My, my personal opinion on that, I'm curious if you'll agree with this, is that asking platforms to own that space can't be done because it is, like they have to be cognizant of their brands. The, the place that that should be falling to is consultants, who are doing a lot of the builds across multiple platforms. And what I've noticed is that integrators like me have tucked up under a platform and then have just worked with that single platform and have not owned their own marketing on saying, this is our space, this is our outcome. And of course, a platform is going to want to sell their products and their licenses as we would expect them to. They're a brand and that's what they do. I, I just feel like this has been the consultant space to own and we just have not owned it. We've mm-hmm. instead borrowed the massive marketing budgets of of the platforms and have basically just gone with their marketing instead of saying, no, it needs to be done like this. So I agree with you on the full tool stack. I just think that that has to come from a a more centered party than, than the platforms. Does that make sense? Do you agree?
2: It does. What if... Um what if that centering party were the foundations or the nonprofits? Because here's a challenge. There are, um, there are less noble consultants in the world that are, that are enjoying the lack of integration, right? It's part of their business yep. model.
0: Worked to... with and worked for a few of those, <laughs> yes. So it may be- Tim's not one of them for the record. Good. Tim's, yeah, very no, noble. I, I... Tim's very I think... noble.
1: <laughs> no, it, it makes sense, but it also makes business sense, right? Like, yeah. yes, I, I understand why it does make sense to just go with one platform or whatever, but that, that doesn't actually work out in the long run. Eventually, like, there's a shelf life on that that I, I feel like, um, well, I guess we live and die in the short run, right? It's Keynesian. So, yeah, I think that that's actually, I think it's back to collaboration, this can't just be a full tool stack and it can't just be full market stack either. We actually have to, um, and, and I was talking about this in the Salesforce uh, partner summit the other the other day about how we need there to be two rooms in the impact world, one in which we compete and another in which we collaborate. Oh, and that is actually a really important factor that doesn't exist in any other industry, but it's possible here and, and it, and it falls the double bottom line, like we're here for impact. So let's see that happen. But we are also are cognizant of our brand and our marketing and that is very expensive. And so there is a world in which we also compete. Those two, Those two things don't have to be all or nothing, um, but maybe I'm too idealistic, which I hear a lot. You
2: know, so. I also think that there could be a market advantage though. Um, there could be a market advantage to new entrants in the, in the- tool stack space for for uh, foundations or nonprofits. It could come from the GMS side. It could come from you know, a CRM side, a business intelligence. It could come from any number of places in the tool stack. But I think that there's a real market advantage to being the first that can integrate across multiple data models.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. Chantal, to your point about convening, and this is where, you know, I'm gonna agree 100% with what you said. I'm gonna agree 100% with what Tim said about the shape of all of this. And and my own personal spin on it is, it's not in the interest and it's not in the realm of executional possibility for any one business entity to be that convener. It just looks disingenuous. And I think some of the interesting kind of market push against even the nonprofit common data model, which began with Microsoft has been like, no, really, this is just Microsoft doing another sales thing, or isn't it? And so the idea that it's a business entity doing the convening obfuscates the natural goodwill. Mm-hmm. And you know, I will say I love Salesforce and I love Microsoft and I love a lot of our application partners. And for folks who've known me over 20 years, it'll be weird for me to hear me say in the same sentence, I love Salesforce and I love Microsoft for a list of reasons that I could spend the next hour listing. But at the end of the day, to your point about that, there's this gap that I am seeing in all of these conversations. And that is that gap of convening. Who's the entity that's going to just say, we as grant makers have this problem Nonprofits have this problem. Businesses have this problem, and we need to get them at the table. Business entities that service nonprofits have this problem. And then there are also a myriad of nonprofit tech organizations that are working on the human capacity side of this that are related to this problem. Like, who is that? Like, can that be tech? Can that be the Honeycomb Alliance? How does that take place in a way that is more real than all of us sort of looking at the problem and saying, yeah, we definitely have a problem here and it's going to cost money and time.
2: Uh, Well, you just threw down a gauntlet. Thank you. Um, I
0: do that. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. The
2: the Honeycomb Alliance that you alluded to. And 10... TechSoup, NetHope, Tag, Um, the pandemic has given us a moment. And so those four organizations came together in response to the pandemic last year to to amplify the pressing and very real needs for nonprofits, for technology, tools, skills, and investment. And we came together to do that so that the, the needs would be coalesced Um, And also so that we could reach them a maximum number of funders as quickly as possible because these were real needs. And so that was the start of a new way of working together as those four organizations. Since then we've created two or three different publications urging funders to invest in their own digital infrastructure in nonprofits and across the sector. We have created a six month task force that worked to prioritize the real needs in five or six different areas of digital infrastructure. Um, We have three projects on the table to begin to address those. Uh, They're all seeking collective funding. I would suggest that the pandemic has given us this moment to live a new way of working together. And the ideal outcome is as we continue that new way of working together and I advocate for some of the things that you're describing. It is still a fresh way of working together and that's not always easy. So the work is getting started and I'm hopeful that we can continue because I'd argue the work you're describing is not just the work of one organization, it's the work of a coalition.
1: Yeah. We've started to talk at um, inside of Now It Matters as just identifying Organizations that take on the role, whether they're recognized for it or not, of being stewards of the ecosystem, mm-hmm. and and I think that there is actually something really important about that, and it does need to be, it it needs to be platforms, it needs to be consultants, it needs to be apps, it needs to be uh, philanthropy, it needs to be um, education as well, and and institutional knowledge that that way. So I I feel like there I. I feel what you're talking about there. And some of that is because I've read the outputs of like your six key elements of digital infrastructure, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, and so we can see the work that's coming out of that, but I do agree. It's not it's not just one brand and it's also not just one sector of that brand. Like this is an ecosystem sized issue that I, I feel like a lot of us need to start looking at. What, what, do, what do we want the future of this this ecosystem to look like um so.
0: also Again, we, not a question just we
2: got in this
0: discussion
2: it. <laughs> but it was powerful and i was we were all moved to silence tim <laughs> oh thank you that's what it is uh yeah <laughs> we got in
0: this discussion with leon in a previous uh recording uh who i know is on your board mm-hmm. uh around the creation of standards uh mm-hmm. and My other question as a follow-up is, is for the kind of work that Honeycomb is doing, because I think that really is an organization that is on the vanguard of bringing together this sort of problem of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, is it going to be helpful to start thinking about like, okay, You know, there are real standards in this world for data transit between, you know, platforms and, you know, internet connections and so forth. There are real standards that can be quantified, you know, and then iterated on as they evolve. I mean, is something like, you know... Defining some IEEE standards, for lack of a better way of saying it, for the nonprofit and philanthropic ecosystem, a useful endeavor because it gives somebody something to hang their hat on as a starting place.
2: Oh, the most fun, boring question out there, right? Um, boring. I'm a
0: very boring person.
2: Boring because, you know, data standards. aren't aren't headlines and yet they're vital. And so this is the challenge of these kind of boring key questions. TAG as an organization has tried this before. TAG is Simplify Initiative. They have tried to launch data standards. Here's the challenge. People don't care and they're not moved by data standards. But they do care and they are moved by real problems that they can comprehend. And if a data standard is a solution, a boring solution to that problem, then so be it, it'll happen. And so I think that um, the pandemic has offered us an opportunity to create multidisciplinary coalitions to solve challenges that have been identified and unearthed as a result of the pandemic, lack of digital infrastructure, need to translate our values, whether they be values of equity or participatory design or participatory grant making, the need to, live, to operationalize those values um, or the need to develop funder coalitions across re- regional areas as we try to rebound um, those geographies. they've unearthed very real challenges that we can care about, that we can fund to. And underneath of those challenges is the need for data standard. So I'd like to see us come at it that way rather than the headline is the data standard.
1: Yep, that's a good word. Yeah. Do you feel like ESG is driving any of that? I know like um, CSR was like just a marketing and corporate penance kind of uh, approach. ESG feels like it's taking it's it's like based on pricing mechanisms now and so it's just a much stronger metric and what is occurring then is that you have social enterprises that are starting to look at impact in a like very concrete measurable way and so they're starting to piggyback on the work that nonprofits and especially philanthropy has been doing for a really long time, I'm saying, here's how we know if we're being effective or not. Are you seeing any of that um, translate into the same kind of need for data standards?
2: Well, a couple of comments on that one. This is a tricky question. So there are two tensions there, right? The desire to quantify and financially quantify the investment in a particular outcome versus on the other side, The desire for more participatory or trust-based philanthropy, you know, removal of reporting mechanisms. I don't know how this tension will be resolved, but I do sit with the personal tension in my own community looking out the window at the South Loop in Chicago. If I care deeply about a particular outcome in my community and I want to see it happen. I would love to know exactly what it would cost and what it would take to do that and sign me up to write that check if that guarantees that outcome. Now, is that a pipe dream that we really can guarantee that outcome? Maybe it is, but what if it wasn't? What if it weren't and what if we knew what it cost? So, I'm sitting with those tensions. I feel I feel the the you know the passion behind both of them. I don't know how they'll be resolved. I do know that our corporate foundation members, tags for corporate foundation members, do tend to be um, more likely to embrace data standards, to accept, to to be willing to invest in more quantification of outcomes, more so than some of our private, our large private foundations. And I don't know why, so I'm simply sharing that as as Mm. a, a noted behavior.
1: Yeah, um, Kate Ruff talks about, um, Kate Ruff from the uh, Common Approach to Impact talks about flexible standards, which I think is really interesting about the plasticity of understanding how those are made. And so I keep forgetting about the tension, which is obvious as soon as you say it. Yeah, there is a tension between like essentially benchmarking progress, you know, versus looking at that as a participation. and so yeah, I think that that's interesting. I wonder what will happen with that. In the meantime, a concern I have is that ESG standards will be written without philanthropy or nonprofits input and get standardized in a way that now we all have to live with because they exist like, you know, like the financials uh, that, that we all have to, to, to live with in the long run. Um, so I think that that's interesting that, that tension does exist not resolving it could lead to worse outcomes if if it's not. So I mean, well, less, not that there's any outcomes. solve it's just interesting,
2: yeah. Right, less outcomes. But you know, you hide on something, Tim, that's great. Let's move forward. Let's agree to always move forward and say, flexible data standards. Because I think yeah. that's a great way to frame it.
0: Well, I mean, yeah. that that's what's driving my sort of like IEEE perspective in a lot of ways, right? Like, it's not like, we developed USB plugs in 1997 and they never changed, right? I mean, the shape maybe stayed the same, but how everything underneath of it works has been completely revised. And what the consumer has is the shape. Like the mouse that I used in 1997 will still plug into a USB port in 2021. And it will still work because the standard iterated, but it retained its compatibility to the things that were developed before, right? And I think that's what, you know, I think about a lot when I think about how technology platforms need to step into partnership with philanthropic initiatives, because every technology platform wants to look good and do good and start their own good, but that's sort of like looking at an industry that's been around for 200 years prior and ignoring its existence. So, you know, one of the really strong promises of what Honeycomb is on about is bringing everybody to that same table. Uh, And that is looking to the future, I hope.
2: What I would say is in all these conversations around data standards, I would really urge us to ground them in how they benefit nonprofits. Yeah. Because most often these conversations are are approached from the funder perspective and look at all the data decision-making, data-driven decision-making I could make if there were data standards. I'd love us to invert this whole conversation and figure out how would this benefit grantees and approach this from the grantee experience and their existing pain points, you know, in the journey map, what are their existing pain points? And is a data standard going to solve them? Maybe it's second tier, third tier problem. I don't know, but what if we started there in approaching this conversation?
0: I love that. I do too. That That actually is to me kind of the best you know as we sort of wind down the best ending statement that i could think of anybody making so my last question for you truly is is what's the thing that we haven't hit on today that you're like sort of holding deep inside where you're just like i need to screen this at the world so that it's on record for somebody because it drives me crazy related to all of this like where Mm -hmm. where do we all need to be paying attention to that all of us are blind to right now in this discussion
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know you had a wonderful tag member on an earlier podcast daisy Sarah from Imagine CRM, CEO of Imagine CRM. And she was speaking about weaving DEI into the fabric of our ecosystem. And I'm thinking about that and also even more broadly, when I think about this statement, she said, we are, you know, we are creating a culture by design rather than mm-hmm. just inheriting a culture the mm-hmm. pandemic has given us an opportunity to create the culture of philanthropy and the culture the social sector culture by design rather than just inheriting what we got before the pandemic and so i think about what does that look like it looks like realizing the scaling factor the innovation factor of technology it looks like realizing that your values are mere paper, unless you think about how they get operationalized through technology and other operational elements. So I would just sit with Daisy's words of wisdom around the opportunity we have to not inherit a culture, but to create that culture very intentionally moving forward.
0: That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I love these conversations, and every time I get in conversation with you, I'm inspired. So thank you, Chantal.
2: An Absolute pleasure to be with you both, and a lot of fun too.
0: Thanks for joining. I'm Tim Lockie. I'm Tracy Kronzak, and you've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters is a thought
1: leadership project of Now It Matters, a strategic services firm offering advising and guiding to nonprofit and social impact organizations.
0: If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, check out our playlists, and visit us at nowitmatters.com to learn more about us.